Hey, everyone. It's Guy here. Just a quick note to tell you that we're working on a whole bunch of new episodes. But in the meantime, here's one from our archives. You may not have heard it. It's called Seven Deadly Sins. We get seven different TED speakers to go over each one of the deadly sins. It's an amazing episode. I hope you enjoy it. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. Guy Raz. And on the show today, The Seven Deadly Sins. And in preparation for this episode, we kind of fell down an internet rabbit hole. Because if you spend enough time looking, you'll find a surprising number of internet conspiracy theories that claim that many of the most beloved film and TV characters are based on those seven sins. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip. For example, Gilligan's Island. Apparently, it's one long parable, with Gilligan representing sloth. <laughs> Gilligan, look! So what's the matter? I can't fall asleep with all that snoring going on. The skipper is wrath. When we find him, I'll pick him up in my arms and break every boat on his body for worrying us like this. Ginger, what else? She's lust. Gilligan? Yeah? Come here. But you've never been so friendly to me before. There's always a first time for everything. The professor is pride. Marianne is envy because, well, she's sort of second fiddle to Ginger. Greed, of course. Thurston Howell III, his wife, better known as Lovey, is gluttony. And the thing is, it kind of sounds plausible, doesn't it? And there are lots of other theories like this. Charlie and the Chocolate Factory is supposedly a Seven Deadly Sins metaphor. So is SpongeBob SquarePants, the cast of Friends, Winnie the Pooh. True or not, there is clearly something to this idea that these seven transgressions can be neatly arranged into a clean and elegant list. Seven behaviors that are deeply embedded into our very nature. So today on the show, we're going to try something a little different. Seven TED speakers, each with an idea about one of the seven deadly sins. So first up... <laughs> well, hey, it's got to be lust, right? <laughs> now is probably a good time to tell you, just as a heads up, that this segment contains some discussion about sex and sexual behaviors that uh, exist. So then, to Christopher Ryan. I'm the co-author of uh, Sex at Dawn, which I co-authored with my wife, Casilda Jetta. Christopher's idea is a provocative one, and not without critics, but it might change the way you think about monogamy, and most importantly, lust. Lust is sort of a very interesting, because the other, the other sins, I can see an argument as to how they are destructive, and, but with lust, if you look at the, the famous Old Testament line, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, like we all think that's about respecting his their marriage, right? But if you read it in context, it says, nor his house, nor his servants, nor his ox, nor his sheep. 
In other words, keep your hands off your neighbor's property. And his wife is just one part of his property that you shouldn't interfere with. So that's what sexual monogamy is. Sexual monogamy is an institution designed to protect the property of the father or the husband. It's not a response to any sort of evolved tendencies. Okay, so Christopher's not only suggesting that monogamy is basically a human invention, but that by being monogamous, by resisting the sin of lust, we might be acting in a way that undermines our very nature, even our survival. Here's his TED Talk. Now, since Darwin's day, there's been what Casilda and I have called the standard narrative of human sexual evolution. And you're all familiar with it, even if you're, you haven't read this stuff. The idea is that as part of human nature, from the beginning of our species time, men have sort of leased women's reproductive potential by providing them with certain goods and services. Generally, we're talking about meat, shelter, status, protection, things like that, right? And in exchange, women have offered fidelity, or at least a promise of fidelity. Now, this sets men and women up in an oppositional relationship, right? Uh, what Casilda and I have argued is that, no, this economic relationship, this oppositional relationship is actually an artifact of agriculture, which only arose about 10,000 years ago at the earliest. So we've argued that human sexuality essentially evolved until agriculture as a way of establishing and maintaining the complex, flexible social systems, networks that our ancestors we're very good at, and that's why our species has survived so well. Now, this makes some people uncomfortable, and so I always need to take a moment in these talks to say, listen, I'm saying our ancestors were promiscuous, but I'm not saying they were having sex with strangers. There were no strangers, right? A hunter-gatherer band, there are no strangers. You've known these people your entire life. So I'm saying, yes, there were overlapping sexual relationships, that our ancestors probably had several different sexual relationships going on at any given moment in their adult lives. But I'm not saying they were having sex with strangers. I'm not saying that they didn't love the people they were having sex with. And I'm not saying there was no pair bonding going on. I'm just saying it wasn't sexually exclusive. And those of us who have chosen to be monogamous, my parents, for example, uh, have been married for 52 years monogamously. I'm not criticizing this, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with this. What I'm saying is that to argue that our ancestors were sexual omnivores is no more a criticism of monogamy than to argue that our ancestors were dietary omnivores is a criticism of vegetarianism. You can choose to be a vegetarian, but don't think that just because you've made that decision, bacon suddenly stops smelling good. Okay? So this is my point. <laughs> that one took a minute to sink in, huh? Okay, so just to clarify, you are, you're, you're basically arguing that we are designed, that the humans are basically lustful, promiscuous animals, right? Well, in Sex at Dawn, essentially what we argue is that a casual, friendly promiscuity is the natural, most deeply resonant human behavior. And that's why we have so much lust, right? It, the fact that human beings think about sex so much is we're off the scale. Uh, most mammals only have sex when the female's ovulating. And when I say most, I mean 
virtually all. Hmm. Uh, the number of mammals who have sex regularly when the female's not ovulating are just a handful, humans, chimps, bonobos, and dolphins, which you'll notice are all highly social, highly intelligent uh, animals. And in all those species, what's happened is that sexuality has become useful for social purposes, for establishing and maintaining social bonds and social networks of trust and intimacy. So, you know, when someone says, oh, you know, that, that person uh, is like an animal sexually. No, animals aren't anything like humans sexually. <laughs> They're embarrassed by us, right? It's sort of the opposite of what most people think. Um, so in your book, you, um, you're arguing that it's, it's not only okay to feel lust all the time, but also to act on it? Not really. No, it's, it's, it's not a guidebook. We're not advocating that everyone should be swingers or polyamorous or you know, promiscuous or anything. In fact, that's the main complaint about Sex at Dawn. People write and say, you left me hanging. You didn't say what I should do now because I don't know what you should do, right? And that's, and that, you know, it's not a particularly sexy book. It's a popular science book. But what they, what's happening is that they're feeling a sense of liberation, there's nothing wrong with me that I'm thinking about sex. There's nothing wrong with me that uh, I love my boyfriend, but I, I, I'm attracted to other men, right? There's nothing wrong with my marriage that my wife thinks about other people and I think about other people. There's a, a sense of forgiveness and acceptance um, that we're very gratified by. Okay, so, so we have this list of seven sins. Uh, and I guess you would argue that this one doesn't belong, like you could just strike it off? Uh, strike it off the list. You know, all the others, wrath, pride, envy, they're all harmful in some way. Lust isn't harmful necessarily. Lust can be lust for life. Who doesn't feel lust for life? And how can we tell someone not to feel lust? Christopher Ryan, his book is Sex at Dawn. His full talk is at TED.com. On the show today... The Seven Deadly Sins. And next up. Define gluttony. Um, well, I, I think the human body needs a certain amount of nourishment and calories in which to survive. And when you start exceeding those for the enjoyment of eating, you're starting to invade the territory of gluttony. This is Mick Cornett. He is the mayor of Oklahoma City. He was elected back in 2004, and even though he didn't plan for it, in that moment, Mick Cornett was unknowingly taking on the sin of gluttony. We'll let him explain in this TED Talk. Now, the city I inherited was just on the verge of coming out of its slumbering economy. And for the very first time, we started showing up on the lists. Now, you know the list I'm talking about. The, the media and the internet love to rank cities. And in Oklahoma City, we'd never really been on lists before. So I thought it was kind of cool when they came out with these positive lists and we were on there. We weren't anywhere close to the top, but we were on the list. We were somebody. Best city to get a job. Best city to start a business. Best downtown. Oklahoma City. And then came the list of the most obese cities in the country. There we were. I was just in, insulted and embarrassed and 
but not in denial. I mean, I, I knew it was an issue. And if, if you were going to rate the cities in obesity, it didn't surprise me that we were on the list because all you had to do is look around at the people and the next generation. You could see our kids. Someone said, and I can't validate this, but I don't doubt it's true, that Oklahoma City has more fast food restaurants per capita than any place on earth. Wow. And about that time, I got on the scales. And I weighed 220 pounds. And then I went to this website sponsored by the federal government, and I typed in my height, typed in my weight, and I pushed enter, and it came back and said, obese. <laughs> what a stupid website. <laughs> I'm not obese. I would know if I was obese. And then I started getting honest with myself about what had become my lifelong struggle with obesity. So Mayor Mick Cornett came up with a plan, not just to take on his own weight problems, but to take on the sin of gluttony in his entire city. That story coming up as we continue with gluttony, the second of our seven deadly sins. I'm Guy Raz, and you're listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone, just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Goldman Sachs, presenting Talks at GS. Goldman Sachs' interview show that convenes leading thinkers to share insights and ideas shaping the world. Recent episodes feature Disney's Bob Iger, journalist Katie Couric, and GM's Mary Barra. That's Talks at GS, available at Hulu, Amazon Prime, Yahoo Finance, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and at GS.com. Thanks also to Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Imagine how it feels to have an award-winning team of mortgage experts make the home buying process smoother for you. With a history of industry-leading online lending technology, Rocket Mortgage is changing the game. Visit rocketmortgage.com ideas. Jessica? Equal housing lender, licensed in all 50 states. NMLSconsumeraccess.org number 3030. Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Push button, get mortgage. No matter what you've got planned, you need a song of the summer. This week on NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour, we are rounding up experts from NPR Music. We will play a ton of songs to lift your spirits, and you might even find your next favorite artist. That's NPR's Pop Culture Happy Hour. Listen and subscribe now. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today... The Seven Deadly Sins. So before the break, we were hearing from Oklahoma City Mayor Mick Cornett. And he was starting to confront his struggle with gluttony, what we might politely call bad eating habits. Well, the, the problem is everybody wants to feed the mayor. Uh, and it's almost like it's an obligatory move by whoever is hosting you or whoever's having a press conference or an event or an invitation that they have some sort of food there. So it's it's breakfast or it's pastries in between or it's lunch or it's cookies in the afternoon. And, and I felt like I was saying no consistently to all these opportunities for additional calories, but obviously I wasn't. You have to eat and, that food. You're the yeah. mayor. You can't <laughs> say no because then well, people are going to be offended. Well, and perhaps that was my, you know, kind of unannounced response. But 
while I was still trying to figure out how to address the community's issue, I first said, I've got to take care of my own issues. And I just stopped eating as much. And I started losing weight. I lost about a pound a week for 40 weeks. And I, I tried to examine how we might deal with obesity and was taking all of these elements into my mind. I decided that the first thing we needed to do was have a conversation. You see, in Oklahoma City, we weren't talking about obesity. And so on New Year's Eve of 2007, I went to the zoo and I stood in front of the elephants and I said, this city is going on a diet and we're gonna lose a million pounds. You did not make the elephants go on a diet, just for the record. <laughs> no, in, in fact, the people at the zoo were concerned that I was implying the elephants were overweight. <laughs> and, and so our, our spin on that was that the elephant size represented the gravity of the situation. I see, right. Okay, fair enough. And we set up a website where people could log in with their weight, and as they lost weight, the website had a counter on it that it would accumulate how many pounds had been lost collectively and how many people had signed up for the program. And so the pounds started to add up. And the conversation that I thought was so important to have was starting to take place. Mothers and fathers talking about it with their kids. Churches were starting their own running groups and their own support groups for people who were dealing with obesity. We also are building hundreds of miles of new sidewalks throughout the metro area. Designing a city around people and not cars. And so you see this culture starting to shift in Oklahoma City. When we reached a million pounds in January of 2012, I flew to New York with some of our participants. And then that afternoon, I did a round of media in New York. And I went into the lobby of Men's Fitness Magazine the same magazine that had put us on that list five years before. And as I'm sitting in the lobby waiting to talk to the reporter, I notice there's a magazine copy of the current issue right there on the table. And I pick it up and I look at the headline across the top and it says, America's fattest cities, do you live in one? Well, I knew I did. So I picked up the magazine and I began to look and we weren't on it. Mick Cornett is the mayor of Oklahoma City. In 2012, Men's Health, that same magazine that named his city one of the fattest in America, put Oklahoma City on its list of fittest cities. But I mean, you still like, you kind of occasionally like eat a, a greasy cheeseburger with like special sauce, right? Yeah, I do. So you haven't cut it out completely? Not completely, no. I probably don't go double quarter pounder with bacon and cheese. I, I, yeah, that, that would be gluttonous. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So here in Washington, D.C., where we produce this show, the population is about 650,000. And of those, a little over 450,000 are eligible to vote. But of those in the last mayoral election... A little more than 96,000 people, that's it, turned out to elect the new mayor. Not the best turnout. Call it apathy or sloth, which is our next sin. You're not using your body, you're maybe not using your mind. It's a physical laziness, but also maybe a spiritual 
laziness. This is Dave Meslin. He's a community organizer in Toronto. And in his job, he runs into political apathy all the time. People don't vote. They don't follow the issues. They don't even know who represents them in government. They're sloths. But actually, according to Dave, they're not. I mean, you don't think that, like, the people tune out of politics or whatever's going on in the world in part because they're kind of lazy? I think it's more of an escape. Huh. You know, I think a lot of us have a lot of negative feelings about the world. I think we're angry about a lot of stuff in the world or confused about it. And we definitely feel disconnected. I mean, we have this mythology that corporations and government have just become this monstrous things. And we as individuals have no role to play. We, mm. can, we can't compete with big money. And when people tune out then and decide to watch a TV show, it's not apathy. It's a sense of like, well, what the hell can I do? That's a sense of hopelessness, which is so different than apathy. Okay, so in his TED Talk, Dave argues that what we think of as apathy is really more like a reaction to the feeling that we have no say in what happens in the world around us. The media plays an important role in developing our relationship with political change, mainly by ignoring politics and focusing on celebrities and scandals. But even when they do talk about important political issues, they do it in a way that I feel discourages engagement. And I'll give you an example. The Now magazine from last week, Progressive Downtown Weekly in Toronto. This is the cover story. It's an article about a theater performance, and it starts with basic information about where it is, in case you actually want to go and see it after you've read the article. Uh, where, the time, the website. Same with this. It's a uh, movie review a art review, a book review, where the reading is in case you want to go, a restaurant. You might not want to just read about it. Maybe you want to go to the restaurant. So they tell you where it is, what the prices are, the address, the phone number, et cetera. Then you get to their political articles. Here's a great article about an important election race that's happening. Talks about the candidates, written very well, but no information, no follow-up, no websites for the campaigns, no information about when the debates are, where the campaign offices are. Here's another good article about a new campaign opposing privatization of transit without any contact information for the campaign. The message seems to be that the readers are most likely to want to eat, uh, maybe read a book, maybe see a movie, but not be engaged in their community. And you might think this is a small thing, but I think it's important because it sets a tone and it reinforces the, the dangerous idea that politics is a spectator sport. Now you add all this up together, and of course people are apathetic. It's like trying to run into a brick wall. As long as we believe that people, our own neighbors, are selfish, stupid, or lazy, then there's no hope. But we can open up City Hall. We can reform our electoral systems. We can democratize our public spaces. My main message is, if we can redefine apathy, not as some kind of internal syndrome, but as a complex web of cultural barriers that, that reinforces disengagement, and if we can clearly define what those obstacles are, and then if we can work together collectively to dismantle those obstacles, then anything is possible. You know, I mean, obviously we're, we're looking at the seven deadly sins on the show today. And, you know, after hearing that, I'm thinking, like, maybe we have this whole, like, this whole sloth thing wrong. <laughs> sure. Well, there's just, there's so little evidence that people are selfish or lazy or stupid. And in fact, I would argue that greed can sometimes be a cure for sloth. And what I mean by that is, we often talk about political engagement in the context of it's a civic duty. 
You know, you should vote because it's your responsibility. I think you should vote out of greed. I think the best way to get people voting isn't to say it's your duty as a citizen. It's to say, don't you care about the transit system? Don't you care about your taxes? Don't you care about the quality of your water? Well, if you care, it's in your own self-interest and selfishness and greed to participate in a system that's been set up to make sure that you have a voice. I don't think that the seven deadly sins is about never doing any of them. I think it's about figuring out maybe when they are appropriate in some measure and, and yeah, maybe how they can actually counteract each other. Dave Meslin, community organizer. Watch his talk, The Antidote to Apathy, at ted.npr.org. Next up. Yeah! Wrath. Fierce, vengeful anger. The kind of emotion that can lead to violence. So back in the mid-1990s, Gary Slutkin was one of the many researchers trying to figure out why certain places in America seem to be more violent, way more violent than others. So I spent a lot of time just looking at graphs and curves and maps. Maps of where gun violence was happening. Now, Gary was not a crime expert. He still isn't. He's a medical doctor, an epidemiologist, actually. And at that time, again, this is the mid-1990s, Gary had just come back from working overseas. He spent over a decade trying to stop the spread of diseases like tuberculosis and cholera in Africa and in other places. And that's why he couldn't help but notice that those maps that charted gun violence in American cities, to his eyes... The patterns looked surprisingly familiar. When you look at Bangladeshi neighborhoods, you see where are the cholera clusters. When you look at um, gonorrhea or HIV, you see the same type of clusters. Which got Gary thinking. Maybe violence... It's going from one person to another to another. ...is more like a disease. Just like flu causes more flu causes more flu. This is this is amazing. I mean, you're basically saying that this is not a sin or the behavior of, like, bad apples or bad people. Like, this is like a contagious disease. Yeah, it isn't like a contagious disease. It is a contagious disease. That idea gave Gary a second one. What if we treat an outbreak of violence the same way we treat other epidemics? So he started up a group called Cure Violence, and the group basically goes into rough neighborhoods. And actually, we hire the people who already know everybody around from the same neighborhoods, and they're very much trusted. Which is the exact same method epidemiologists use to fight Ebola and cholera outbreaks. Gary calls these workers violence interrupters. They find out you know, who's mad at who, who was shot, and that might cause a retaliation, you know, who just came out of prison or something who was looking for some revenge. And it turns out a good cure for that kind of wrath is conversation. Here's Gary's TED Talk. There's a way to reverse epidemics. And in order to interrupt transmission, you need to detect and find first cases. In other words, for TB, you have to find somebody who is active TB who is infecting other people. Makes sense? So violence interrupters hired from the same group, credibility, trust, access, and trained in persuasion, cooling people down, buying time, 
reframing. Now, our first experiment of this resulted in a 67% drop in shootings and killings in the West Garfield neighborhood of Chicago. And this, and this was a beautiful thing for the neighborhood itself. First 50 or 60 days, and then 90 days. And then there was, unfortunately, another shooting in another 90 days. And the moms were hanging out in the afternoon. They were using parks they weren't using before. The sun was out. Everybody was happy. But, of course, the funders said, wait a second, do it again. And so we had to then, fortunately, get the funds to repeat this experience. And this is one of the next four neighborhoods that had a 45% drop in shootings and killings. And since that time, this has been replicated 20 times. There have been independent evaluations supported by the Justice Department and by the CDC and performed by Johns Hopkins that have shown 30 to 50 and 40 to 70% reductions in shootings and killings using this new method. This could really change not just the way we think about violence, but really how we manage it, right? Because what you're saying is that, that crime doesn't necessarily happen because somebody is bad. Of course not, because how about someone who has tuberculosis, for example? We used to think that people who had tuberculosis had it because they were bad. And we also thought this with leprosy, with plague, with people with seizures, we used to see them as bad. Well, why did we? Well, we didn't fully understand what was going on within the biology of it, that there were invisible microorganisms which we didn't know about. Right. Well, a very similar thing is going on with violent behavior, is that people are actually acquiring the behavior from other people. Gary Slutkin, you can find out more about Cure Violence and see Gary's entire talk at TED.com. So Nick Hanauer has more than one house, more than two. In fact, more than three. How many, how many do you have? Five, six. Five or six? Yeah. Which one? Uh, you know, I just I have a house here. I have a house in Mexico. I have a house in San Juan Islands. I have, uh, uh, oddly, two ski houses trying to sell one. Okay, so Nick Hanauer is very rich, but he didn't come from money. And having so much, he admits it's it's a little weird. It makes my wife super uncomfortable. When you talk about, <laughs> when you talk about like, being rich? Well, when anybody talks about yeah. our circumstance. You know, I, I work hard and I'm reasonably smart, but I was definitely and have repeatedly been in the right place at the right time. Nick co-founded a tech company, which later sold to Microsoft for $6.4 billion. So he's not just a one percenter. Nick's like in the top 0.01%, which brings us to our next sin, greed. <laughs> Is greed a sin? Absolutely. Really? Absolutely, it's a sin. Greed is a sin because humans are social creatures, and they simply cannot survive without the opposite of greed, which is cooperation. People like Nick Hanauer, the top 1%, will soon control more than half of the world's wealth. And Nick believes the growing gap between rich and poor is bad for everyone. And he thinks the driving force behind that gap is greed. Here's part of Nick's TED Talk. 
You see, the problem isn't that we have some inequality. Some inequality is necessary for a high-functioning capitalist democracy. The problem is that inequality is at historic highs today, and it's getting worse every day. And if wealth, power, and income continue to concentrate at the very tippy top, our society will change from a capitalist democracy to a neo-feudalist rentier society like 18th century France. You know, France before the revolution and the mobs with the pitchforks. So I have a message for my fellow plutocrats and zillionaires and for anyone who lives in a gated bubble world. Wake up, wake up, it cannot last. Because if we do not do something to fix the glaring economic inequities in our society, the pitchforks will come for us. For no free and open society can long sustain this kind of rising economic inequality. It has never happened. There are no examples. You show me a highly unequal society and I will show you a police state or an uprising. The pitchforks will come for us if we do not address this. It's not a matter of if, it's when. Coming up, Nick Hanauer's plan to fight the sin of greed. That's in a minute. On the show today, the seven deadly sins. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Walton Family Foundation, where opportunity takes root. More information is available at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. Hear the stories behind the songs that rally communities large and small across America. Listen and subscribe to All Songs Considered, Throughline, and Alt Latino for a closer look at songs from NPR's American Anthem series. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, we're deep in the pit of sin, slogging our way through sloth and gluttony and lust and wrath. And before the break, we were talking to Nick Hanauer, your basic tech gazillionaire from Seattle, about greed. So what do you think makes people that way? Like, what do you think makes people greedy? Uh, uh, you know, so I think that the most powerful dynamic in human societies is the yearning for status. Yeah. I think the people who end up being extraordinarily successful, it's been my observation, tend to care enormously about status, particularly business people, right? Mm -hmm. Because the only point of money, you know, the only reason to have a 300-foot-long boat is because they're bigger than 200-foot-long boats. Yeah. You know, people do these things to prove that they have more money and more status than others. And so, you know, I think that that drives a ton of human behavior. And in his TED Talk, Nick says that if nothing changes... The consequences, not just for poor people, but also for rich people, could be disastrous. So what do I see in our future today? You ask? I see pitchforks, as in angry mobs with pitchforks. Because while people like us plutocrats are living beyond the dreams of avarice, 
the other 99% of our fellow citizens are falling farther and farther behind. I'm not making a moral argument that economic inequality is wrong. What I'm arguing is that rising economic inequality doesn't just increase our risks from pitchforks, but it's also terrible for business too. So the model for us rich guys should be Henry Ford. When Ford famously introduced the $5 day, which was twice the prevailing wage at the time, he didn't just increase the productivity of his factories. He converted exploited auto workers who were poor into a thriving middle class who could now afford to buy the products that they made. Ford intuited what we now know is true. Raising wages increases demand, which increases hiring, which in turn increases wages and demand and profits. And that virtuous cycle of increasing prosperity is precisely what is missing from today's economic recovery. It's for all these reasons that Nick's been doing things that might seem to run counter to his self-interest, like promoting higher taxes on people like him. And in his hometown of Seattle, Nick lobbied the city council to raise the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour. It's now the highest in the country. And he says all these ideas aren't just good for poor people. They'll actually help rich people, too. The work of democracies is to maximize the inclusion of the many in order to create prosperity, not to enable the few to accumulate money. Government does create prosperity and growth by creating the conditions that allow both entrepreneurs and their customers to thrive. Balancing the power of capitalists like me and workers isn't bad for capitalism, it's essential to it. Fellow plutocrats, I think it may be time for us to commit to a new kind of capitalism which is both more inclusive and more effective. A capitalism that will ensure that America's economy remains the most dynamic and prosperous in the world. Or alternatively, we could do nothing. Hide in our gated communities and private schools, enjoy our planes and yachts, they're fun, and wait for the pitchforks. Thank you. Rich people, your fellow plutocrat Nick Hanauer is coming after you. You can check out his entire talk at TED.com. Uh, which is your favorite sin? Which is my favorite sin? Yeah. I think... Envy, I think, is my favorite sin. There's something so private about it and something pernicious about this way of looking at the world or looking at your neighbor and something in it that can be a catalyst for very, very dangerous action. This is Parol Segal. She's an editor at the New York Times Book Review. And where does she find the best examples of envy? Not just in fiction, but also in stories from her own life. So when I was eight years old, a new girl came to join the class, and she was so impressive. She had vast quantities of very shiny hair and super strong on state capitals and great speller. And I, 
I just, I curdled with jealousy that year until I hatched my devious plan. So one day I stayed a little late after school. When the coast was clear, I emerged, crept into the classroom and took from my teacher's desk the grade book. And then I did it. I fiddled with my rival's grades, just a little, just demoted some of those A's, all of those A's. And I got ready to return the book to the drawer when, hang on, some of my other classmates had appallingly good grades too. So, in a frenzy, I corrected everybody's marks. Not imaginatively, not imaginatively, I gave everybody a row of D's and I gave myself a row of A's just because I was there, you know, might as well. Okay, so you did this? Yes. You really did this? I stand by it, yeah. Did, did, you, ever, did you ever wonder if you ruined that little girl's life? All the time. Yeah. I kept waiting to hear from her, actually. <laughs> I kept waiting. Or from my teacher. That's who I really wanted to hear from. I wanted to hear, like, you know, I mean, after the thrill of getting away with it, I felt terrible, but it just goes to show how early we start feeling competitive and aggressive and entitled and ambitious about these things. Actually, they found that babies from the ages of three months on feel can feel incredibly jealous. So it's just, it's so deeply rooted. Yeah, I mean, that's a thing about envy because it's like there's a fine line between envy and and rivalry. I mean, they're related. Yeah. They're, and so, I mean, you could argue that feeling envious can be like a motivator, right? Could like right. actually make you better at what you do. Yeah, so ideally it can be this you know this incredibly powerful catalyst to realize that you value something so deeply because you're resenting somebody else's excellence and you can work even harder. You know, or you can take my route, which is Which what? Just change the grades. <laughs> Why did it bother me so much that this little girl, this tiny little girl was so good at spelling? Jealousy baffles me. Um it's so mysterious and it's so pervasive. And yet, I've never read a study that can parse to me its loneliness or its longevity or its grim thrill. For that, we have to go to fiction because the novel is the lab that has studied jealousy in every possible configuration. In fact, I don't know if it's an exaggeration to say that if we didn't have jealousy, would we even have literature? Well, no faithless Helen, no Odyssey, no jealous king, no Arabian Nights, no Shakespeare. There goes high school reading lists because we're losing Sound and the Fury, we're losing Gatsby, Sun Also Rises, we're losing Madame Bovary, Anna Kay. Patricia Highsmith to Hitchcock to Hamlet, they're all engineered by envy. Envy is always the catalyst because envy on some level is just desire. We can't live without that. And, and true, like there's certain kinds of painful aspects of envy and jealousy or dangerous aspects of envy and jealousy that we should absolutely live without. But that hunger, that sort of quickening, no, I think that that's completely a rich and kind of thrilling thing. Do you think that envy is just a, like a part of being human? Yeah, I think, it's, I, think, I think it's a really, really deep, deep, deep part of what it means to be a human being. Darwin says it was a survival mechanism, jealousy and envy, that we have this need for access to the loved one, to be the first in their affections, to have resources. But I think linked to that, and more interesting to me, I think, is we are storytelling creatures. And I think that we 
compulsively are trying to figure out what makes people work, what makes people succeed, what makes, um, why are we where we are? Okay, so if envy is is just inevitable, I mean, how, how would you avoid it or, or suppress it if you if you wanted to? I think one thing you can do is to tweeze it apart a little bit. You know, and it's usually the things that we're really, really deeply envious about and that really get to us aren't somebody's boat, you know? And the stuff that really, really needles us seems to be like like time, stuff like um, ease, stuff like peace, stuff like safety. And I think that's tied w- to our own desires to sort of figure out what our best life is like or what our definitions of comfort and success are like. So yeah, so maybe maybe I'm overly optimistic. Maybe I'm thinking of envy more as a sort of catalyst for self-improvement and change and, you know, and not, uh, not its sort of senior aspects. Paro Segal, she's an editor at the New York Times Book Review. You can see her entire talk at ted.npr.org. Okay, so we've arrived to our final sin, pride. The kind of pride that really bothers me is just smug superiority, you know? People eager to show you what they know and not caring about the feelings of anyone around them. That really gets to me. This is a man who is well acquainted with both humility and that deadly sin, pride. I'm Ken Jennings. I'm a former Jeopardy! champion. Okay, Ken is being modest because he is the Jeopardy! champion. He won 74 times in a row, more than anyone else ever. Ken. Who's Aristophanes? Ken. What's the Trojan horse? Ken. Who's Jean Lafitte? Ken. What's the dodo? Ken. What is Stella? Ladies and gentlemen, Ken Jennings. As a game show obsessed kid, if you had told me that I was one day going to be marginally famous for being a Jeopardy! contestant, like, to me, that would have been better than, than winning the Cy Young or something. That was my dream. So Ken had accomplished his dream. But a few years later, this is in 2009, he got a call from Jeopardy! again. The show was partnering with IBM, which was working on a supercomputer that could play Jeopardy! They were calling it Watson. And they wanted Ken to compete against Watson, which is where pride entered the picture. Ken picks up the story in his TED Talk. I was pretty confident that I was going to win. I had taken some artificial intelligence classes. I knew there were no computers that could do what you need to do to win on Jeopardy. It's, people don't realize how tough it is to write that kind of program that can read a Jeopardy clue in a natural language like English and understand all the double meanings, the, the puns, the red herrings, the, you know, unpack just the meaning of the clue, the kind of thing that a, a three- or four-year-old human, a little kid, could do. Very hard for a computer. And I thought, well, this is just, you know, this is going to be child's play. Yes, I will come destroy the computer and (laughs) defend my species. Um, So you're thinking good thoughts. It's probably going to be a chance to say, okay, well, maybe you guys ought to go back to the drawing board and keep working at it. Yeah, I mean, how great would that be to have IBM pour millions of dollars into into this new technology and then just to, like, humiliate it on national... TV in primetime. That sounds great. This is Jeopardy! The IBM Challenge. Okay, so I hope this is not a spoiler, but Ken... Let's play Jeopardy. Here we go. ...got creamed. Watson. What is violin? Good. Watson. What is leprosy? You are right. Watson. 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 What is who is? You are right. You got it. Engay fever. Correct. Daily double. 
Go again, Watson. I remember trying to buzz in. This from the Latin for despise. And Watson just beating me every time. Watson. What is contempt? Correct. With its evil little calculating robotic thumb. Watson retains control of the board. Watson again. Now to our leader, Watson. Answer. The other daily double. Ken. What is A? No. So it was really a, just a, a crushingly lopsided score. And a two-day total of 77,147. And that means, ladies and gentlemen, that world vision... And I remember standing there behind that podium, and I remember thinking, you know, this is it. I, I felt obsolete. I felt like a, a Detroit factory worker of the 80s seeing a robot that could now do his job on the assembly line. I, I felt like quiz show contestant was now the first job that had become obsolete under this new regime of, of thinking computers. And it was freaking demoralizing. It was, it was terrible. Here's the one thing that I was ever good at, and all it took was IBM pouring tens of millions of dollars and its smartest people and thousands of processors working in parallel, and they could do the same thing. They could do it a little bit faster and a little better on national TV, and I'm sorry, Ken, we don't need you anymore. And I was just thinking, this is how everyone else felt playing me, you know? This is, this is a taste of my own medicine. This is instant karma, and I totally deserve every second of this. There's your literary story of hubris brought low. Yeah. Why, why do you think it's fun to watch that happen? I think it's because it's so satisfying to see the idea of these proud people get their comeuppance, you know? Yeah. And then the audience is like, yeah, this is so cathartic. Like, if only this would happen to my boss. So I'm sure it's just millennia old, this idea that, uh, that we love to see smug people get what's coming to them. So at the end of the day, I mean, do you feel like pride should be, should be considered one, one of the deadly sins? You know, I do feel like pride leads to a lot of problems. You know, pride leads to a lot of crap. It leads to the wrong people seeking public office or getting rich or whatever it is. Um, but on the other hand, you know, there, there, there's things you should legitimately feel proud about, you know? Like when my, my, I went to see my kid's Christmas concert and he played really well and I was very proud of him, you know? I can't apologize for like that. Like when you won Jeopardy 74 times in a row. It's a lifelong dream, you know? How can I say, yeah, I guess I'm sort of proud of having been on Jeopardy for six months. I mean, without pride, would we ever have, like, gone to the moon? You know, yeah, exactly. I, that's JFK being like, you know, we choose to go to the moon and do other things, you know, because they are hard. You know, that's that's him saying, think how awesome America is going to be after we've walked on the mother effing moon. You know, yeah. man's reach must exceed his grasp or what is heaven for? You know, that's where the great uh, human achievements come from. Somebody thinking big. Ken Jennings, Jeopardy champion and humble man. You can see his entire talk at TED.com. So at the beginning of the show, we mentioned this conspiracy theory that a lot of popular TV and film characters are based on the seven deadly sins, including the ones from Gilligan's Island. Well, here's a scene from the 1978 made-for-TV movie called Rescue from Gilligan's Island. You be the judge. Ever since we've been back, I've learned a lot about civilization. And I've learned a lot about who our friends really are. Yes, judging by our various experiences, we've had lessons in lust, greed, envy, sloth, anger, gluttony, and pride. The same seven deadly sins that have always plagued mankind. You know, it's funny, Professor. We never had those problems back on the island. Well, that's because we learned how to live with each other. 
you sinners drop everything let that harmony ring up to heaven and sing sing you sinners Hey, thanks for listening to our show on the seven deadly sins this week. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Chris Benderev, with help from Daniel Shukin. Barton Girdwood is our intern. In the front office, Eric Newsom and Portia Robertson-Migas. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee. I'm Guy Raz, and you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR.